You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today we have a sort of special episode because we're going to be touching on two important topics. One of those is to introduce you all to a new research scientist within the Ducks Unlimited organization. And at the same time, we're going to have that person talk about some of their recent research into ducklings and uh, brood use of wetlands up in the prairies. And so I am very happy and excited to welcome to this episode, Katrina Terry, our new research scientist with Ducks Unlimited's Great Plains Regional Office. Katrina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Happy to be here. You know, we want to start out by giving you an opportunity to, to provide an introduction to yourself, uh, of yourself to our listeners. We're going to give you the opportunity to do that from both a personal background, where'd you come from, what were your interests, and then now professionally, what it is that you do for Ducks Unlimited. So let's just start with sort of your, your personal background. Where'd you come from and, and what has kind of motivated you over the years to pursue a career in, in ducks and wetlands? All right. Uh, so I am originally from Northern California. I grew up in Sacramento. So I grew up in a pretty big city. Didn't really know a lot about ducks growing up, but I was heavily loved exploring uh, the wetlands near my house, catching tadpoles. And it wasn't really until I started my undergrad that I started learning a lot about ducks because I wanted to work with wetlands. And it kind of all came together for me to start working with ducks with John Eady at UC Davis. And from there, I ended up being able to to have a lot of technician jobs from Nevada to Louisiana, um, up into Manitoba, which eventually landed me into my master's research at Louisiana State University. So Dr. John Eady is a name that our our listeners, uh, many of our listeners will be familiar with. He has joined us for several episodes talking about a number of things, one of which was his involvement with the University Hunt program there at UC Davis. Did you go through that? Yes. So um, I went through that, ooh, I think it must have been January 2015, I want to say. Um, very lucky to go through the first time hunt program. Um, I had never hunted before. I shot my first shotgun slash real gun uh, besides a paintball gun before then that weekend. And so I was able to get out in the morning in the marsh and I shot about two boxes of shells and I was able to harvest uh, a beautiful adult drake uh, widgeon. And since then, um, that really spurred kind of a different trajectory. Um, I come from a non-hunting background, so it was a little bit hard to get into at first, but I've probably hunted and 10 different states. I mean, from ducks to quail to pheasant, um, hopefully get a swan this year. Been able to do some crane hunts in Texas, but that all kind of, I think, helped because of this hunt program. I don't know 
how or if I would have been able to get into hunting. And even if I would, uh, you know, be a duck scientist today, because that really helped me with jobs, with people in my field to like make a connection, make a connection with landowners and hunters um, that I've been able to work with uh, over the last few years. Yeah, I want to I wanna spend a little bit of time just kind of uh, casually exploring some of your experiences and some of your background. You mentioned that you're hoping to harvest a swan this year. I, you, you live in North Dakota now, and I think that means that you were successfully drawn for a, a swan tag. Is that right? Yep, yep. We got our swan results yesterday, and I drew a tag for swan this year. Well, good luck to that. I, that's that's a species that I have never had the fortune of, of harvesting. Maybe I'll get that on my list at, at some point. But I also, I also wanted to talk with you about some of your experiences. You mentioned that you travel a little bit to get some some of that field experience, which was instrumental in positioning you to be competitive for some graduate uh, projects, and that is an important step along your way to you know where you are now. And I had a uh, encountered a, uh, and this happens every now and then. People will contact me asking for advice on how they can kind of make some progress in this field. They may be undergraduates or they may be graduate students. I encountered a guy from Ohio State a few weeks ago here at headquarters, and he was asking me some questions specifically about kind of field research, technician experience, that type of stuff. But I wanted to hear a little bit more about yours. How did you do it? Were those summer positions or did you volunteer or work alongside graduate students at UC Davis during the semesters? What was your experience like and the the timing of all of that? Uh, Yeah. So um, when I first started my undergraduate career, I started a community college um, and I actually got my first tech job because I worked at this restaurant and one of the bartenders was a environmental scientist during the week, bartender on Saturday nights. Uh, I got to go out in the kayak all summer and look for invasive aquatic weeds. So that's kind of how I got my start, kind of got a little lucky because he was looking for some help. Uh, and then when I got into Davis, Davis had a listserv for my major. So my major was wildlife conservation and fish biology. And so they had a listserv, so you could, they would send out if they had volunteer opportunities or technician opportunities. So I was able to volunteer and do some telemetry on some salmon projects. And then I was also working for USDA, mostly pulling weeds uh, at a place close by. So kind of doing a little bit of grunt work throughout my undergrad. For the most part, I was able to do these during the school year, if time allowed. Uh, When I was doing the invasive aquatic weeds, that was all summer work. But thankfully, during the school year, I had a couple days with no classes. I was able to go um, and keep working. And it wasn't until I started working for John Eady with the Wood Duck Project that I had my first real wildlife job. And so that started, I think, about February. And I worked with him until January when I graduated. So I was able to accumulate a few different uh, kind of wildlife field jobs during my undergrad some volunteer. And that also required me to apply to a lot of positions that I didn't get and kind of uh, bug some of the grad students. And Dr. Edie finally landed a job. And I worked with a couple of his grad students that had um, different projects going on within the Wood Duck Project. And through him, I um, ended up meeting Dr. Chris Nikolai. And Chris Nikolai, he just ended, I think, I want to say 16-year project for the Fallon Nevada Wood Duck Project. So after I graduated from Davis, I started working for Nikolai 
out of Fallon, Nevada. And so that was a really cool job. Uh, so we were doing all the nest boxes, but we also got to rocket net wood ducks um, and did a lot of banding throughout the year. I worked for him for two years and then I went down to Louisiana to work for Paul Link on a speckle belly project or greater white fronted geese, putting trackers on them, looking at movement, looking at habitat use. And then after that, I went up to Manitoba to work on a canvas back project. So all of these tech jobs, like I definitely applied for a lot when I was still an undergrad. But I think the thing about Waterfall World, as long as you kind of once you're in it, it's easier to kind of get more waterfowl jobs because everyone knows everyone because it's a sm- such a small community. I think I told my technician who was applying to a bunch this summer, I think I applied for 30 to 40 jobs before I graduated undergrad. Wow. So you got a, you, you got a lot of experience <laughs> applying for jobs. That's a good, oh, that's yeah. a good thing. Ooh, I read those cover letters now and I'm like, ooh, how did I get hired? <laughs> <laughs> I've I've done that too. Yeah. yeah. But also in undergrad, I was I knew I wanted to work for ducks, but I didn't know if I should diversify. So I applied to a lot of jobs that were just not ducks. But the Nikolai's position is the one I wanted most. So I was very excited to have gotten that. And I did not realize that you had that much experience between your undergrad and your graduate years. I, I took a year off as well, but mine was actually between like junior and senior year of undergraduate. And then I went straight into my graduate work and I had a couple of summer field positions also in, in previous years. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you took a bit of a different route and we have an opportunity for our listeners to hear that. You took a couple of years off, three years maybe, um, after undergraduate and did the technician, you know, year-round technician route, uh, which is certainly a viable one and a good one for for people. So the other thing that it does, uh, you certainly are a great example of that, is it, it exposes you to different geographies that are important for waterfowl wetlands conservation. And so you've traveled across many of those different high priority geographies. That's got to be pretty cool in itself, right? Oh, yeah. And that's kind of like what I try to sway people to is to go get work experience after their undergrad. For me, I knew I did not want to go straight to grad school. I wanted to kind of travel and work a bunch of jobs. And I feel really fortunate that I've been able to work in kind of like the major wintering areas for waterfowl and the major nesting areas and just see a lot of different places that I probably would have never gone to meet a lot of people. And like Louisiana, I mean, it was great that I had a technician job there because when my eventual grad position became available, I I wanted to go back because I, I loved Louisiana. And my, my mom had visited me when I was teching there and she was like, she couldn't believe how much fun Louisiana was either. It's just a place that I don't know. California offers a lot, and I think we take that for granted. And so we don't tend to travel as much as some other states do, especially down to the south. You're right. There's no place like Louisiana, especially south Louisiana, from a whole different you know, per- perspectives in terms of the the natural resources it provides, the cultural diversity that it provides down there. That's that's fascinating in itself. I was fortunate to live down there for a number of years, and that's actually where you and I encountered one another a few times there at Rockefeller uh, Refuge doing some doing various research field work. So it's cool to catch up with you again. I'm also glad early on in this conversation that you mentioned some of the initial work that you did, the experience you gained was, as you described it, the grunt work, pulling weeds or identifying invasive uh, invasive plants. I, I think uh, 
I think people need to realize it's not always glamorous um, holding ducks and banding ducks and cuddling little ducklings as we're taking measurements from them. A lot of times you have to uh, you have to do the, the hard stuff, the mundane stuff. One of the first projects I had as a technician was counting dots on a piece of paper. So <laughs> it's not all not all glamorous. Oh, I almost forgot I had a summer job where they were using um they took photos of California tiger salamanders, and then they were trying to put them through this computer software because tiger salamanders, you can identify them based on their spots, just like tigers have a unique, unique tiger stripe. So all I did was outline every salamander in a photo and hit submit all summer. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that would have been prior to uh, image recognition software, whatever it would be called, right? Yeah, that was like, that was like they were trying to, yeah. Then this was still probably 2012, 2013. That's probably all automated now. Yeah, probably. So Katrina, I let's see here. You, you went to school at uh, uh, graduate school at LSU. We're going to talk about that in a bit more detail here in a second. Uh, the second half of this conversation will be an opportunity for you to tell us about that research and what you learned. But uh, your advisor there was Dr. Kevin Ringelman. He has been a guest on the on the show uh, previously as well. I think he appeared in that episode with Dr. Edie. And let's see, you now, you recently came to Ducks Unlimited. Tell us when that was. Uh, I mean, we've, I know it's been since the, the pandemic started and, and you and I have not had an opportunity to meet at the same place. You know, we're all still limited in travel and all that kind of stuff. But tell us a bit about when you came to Ducks Unlimited and what you do in your position there as a research scientist. I started my position with Ducks Unlimited in May. And uh, my main job is to coordinate our internship program. So we started an internship program in 2015 with the University of North Dakota with Susan Feligi. And so this program, we have four technicians, two accrued leaders and two are interns. And they spend all summer nest dragging, finding duck nests and collecting data. And each of them uh, has their own research project that they develop that they'll write up and uh, present at national and state conferences. Uh, And that's one of our main goals is to get undergrads more involved in the research aspects. And that way, potentially, they can uh, be better suited for after grad or after undergrad and potentially for grad school or the workforce. And since 2015, we've expanded the project more. This year, we added um, sampling invertebrates in these wetlands and also doing brood surveys. Uh, And one of my main goals is to expand our internship program to the Great Plains region to involve more universities and to get more uh, undergrads involved with research, whether it be uh, with ducks or with wetlands in general. I'm also got a large data set that I'm hoping to get some publications out in the next few years. So when you say expand that intern program throughout the Great Plains, you're you're talking about establishing intern programs with other universities in that region? Yes, correct. So other universities, other states. So our region includes North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Nebraska, Kansas, Wyoming, Colorado, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we're really hoping to reach out to more universities. And so I'm going to be working on a lot of like trying to fundraise money for these interns because the big thing is we want to be able to pay all of our technicians this year. And so getting the money, getting a professor that would want to help potentially on the ground since I'm up in North Dakota. That's what we're trying to do and just get more more undergrads involved because I think 
One of the big reasons I'm in research today is because I was able to have an undergraduate project at UC Davis because that really solidified that I wanted to do research. But I don't think a lot of these undergrads have that opportunity. And to me, I think it's really important. And I think it's important also just from the hands-on experiential learning perspective, regardless of whether an individual continues to uh, on the path of actually doing some research type uh, in a research position or doing science or, you know, conducting scientific investigations as part of their long-term career. But just having that experience, hands-on experience with the natural world, and in this particular case, ducks and wetlands and other wildlife that depend on wetlands, that's incredibly valuable long-term, regardless of what those people go on to do in their professional careers. They have that connection. They see that value. I personally, I know we as an entire organization are so excited about all of these opportunities and new programs that we have that are engaging uh, the younger uh, younger people in various aspects of what it is that we do. And these intern programs are a really cool um, part of that, I, we featured them on, uh, I think we had a feature in a recent magazine, issue of the magazine where we, we spoke about them. And I know we've had Dr. Feligi on here uh, on, on a previous episode. So that's pretty cool, really exciting and um, happy to have you leading that now. That's got a, um, that probably not a better person in the organization to be doing that, uh, given all of your experience and the way you can see it through those through the eyes of the participants there. So that's fantastic. Uh, I want to want to go ahead and sort of shift to talking about your uh, your master's research, which is quite interesting in its uh, in its own right. It uh, focused on ducklings and uh, brood use of wetlands in the prairie pothole region, and it even included some cool uh, unmanned aerial vehicle technology. And so I want to turn this over to you right now as we get into this second half of the discussion and and give you an opportunity to tell us about that research. And I guess to start off kind of broad, uh, at, at a broad level, tell us what you were studying, why it's important, and then generally what your objectives were. So I'll just hand it over to you now, Katrina. So my master's project was to look at brood use and abundance of small wetlands in the PPR and uh, the prairie pothole region. Uh, and specifically, we were looking in a region of the PPR that's dominated by row crop agriculture. So your corn, your soybean predominantly. And we were looking at these small wetlands, so less than 25 acres in size that were uh, predominantly surrounded by row crops. The reason we were looking at these wetlands specifically is they are the most at risk. They're most likely to be drained, potentially vanishing from the landscape. So we wanted to know how important they are for uh, duck production. And so our objective was to survey wetlands for broods and then sample these wetlands to see if broods are even using these wetlands and kind of what what in the wetlands is promoting their abundance and brood use. And so the reason we kind of focus on crop-dominated landscapes is, you know, obviously to see our broods using them and potentially because of climate variation, we could be getting more rain um, or a little bit better conditions in the eastern part of the prairie pothole region, which is dominated by row crops. When you go into the coteau, which is kind of where a lot more ducklings are produced. That's going to be a lot more grassland dominated, but especially this year, it's a little bit drier versus the Eastern PPR is getting a little bit more water. And that was kind of, I think the beginning process when they were putting this project together was if the rain shifts and we don't, and we do potentially lose these wetlands and the Coteau or the more 
uh, high density uh, nesting areas? Are these wetlands that are surrounded by crops going to be productive for ducks? Or are we going to potentially lose a lot of ducks because we don't have that grassland habitat there? So at the core of your research, you were interested in measuring brood abundance, the number of broods on these different wetlands, and then trying to measure some of the other variables that you think may have affected the abundance of broods on these wetlands. Uh, so tell us a little about that. You, I think you conducted this over two years. Tell us which years those were. And then generally at a high level, what did your methods look like? How did you collect this data and what, what data were you collecting? So we actually started a pilot season in 2018, but we collected most of our data in 2019 and 2020. In the pilot season, we tested how effective our unmanned aerial vehicle was going to be for brood surveys. So me as a pilot would, would do surveys, and then we had uh, technicians go and survey these wetlands with binoculars, which is the traditional way to do brood surveys. Um, and then we ended up comparing that because we wanted to see if this was going to be a good method to use going forward. And we ended up seeing twice as many broods with the UAV than with the ground surveyors. Uh, we actually just got our publication out a few weeks ago, uh, if you want to learn more about that. So in 2019, we continued with doing brood surveys solely with the unmanned aerial vehicle. And then we started collecting information on these wetlands. So we wanted to know what about these wetlands caused them to have broods or not broods. So I collaborate with Iowa State University. There's a grad student there, Blake Mitchell. He was in charge of collecting the data in southern Minnesota and the prairie pothole region of Iowa. And I collected my data in the eastern North Dakota and eastern South Dakota. And that way, we were able to compile a larger data set on these dominated landscapes. So we first surveyed all of our wetlands using the drone or the unmanned aerial vehicle. Uh, and so what was really special and why the UAV works so well is it has both a thermal camera and a visual camera. So dabbling ducks, if you ever approach a wetland, generally the ducklings are going to scurry into the cattail. Um, but with a thermal camera, even if they're hiding the cattail, you can see a brood down there uh, really easily. And this enabled us to get better counts on broods. Um, we were able to identify them to species. We were able to get an age class and how old the ducklings were and count how many ducklings. And so after we did brood surveys, we looked at uh, wetland characteristics. So what's really important to broods first few weeks of their life are invertebrates. So that's pretty much all they eat are the insects and bugs in the wetlands. And so we sampled every wetland for invertebrates, see if there could be differences in these wetlands and seeing if invertebrates influenced whether or not broods were there and whether or not there was multiple broods on a wetland. Uh, and then we looked at vegetation of the wetland. So if there was a emergent vegetation like cattail or bulrush, if there was submerged aquatic uh, vegetation like coontail. And then kind of what we wanted to know was does proximity to cropland impact brood use? So a lot of my wetlands, especially in the Dakotas, there would be cornfields right up to the cattail. So they don't have much of a buffer at all. There's no grassland strip around it. So we wanted to know, does that impact them? Because theoretically, the grassland around the buffer, around the wetland, could increase uh, nesting habitat. So we wanted to look at how close crops were. And as I mentioned a while ago, all of our wetlands were less than 25 
acres in size. So they're small wetlands. And, and so what was challenging about that uh, from your scientific standpoint? So I think what was challenging about that is these are these were abnormal years. So is the data I'm collecting going to be true in you know normal years or drought years, or are they only going to be true for wet years? And I think the big thing about the prairies is they need to dry out for the potholes to be productive. And my wetlands stayed pretty much full all year, both years. And I think that could have changed productivity, just of potentially even the invertebrates in the wetlands. And I think I don't get a full picture because I had such wet years. It would have been interesting to compare a wet and a dry year, but I was also thankful that I had wetlands to sample. So a couple of things here, Katrina. Number one, it would be really interesting to see how the results would have been different this year, (laughs) 2021 (laughs) with the extreme drought across much of your study area. And the other is just to kind of go back to one of the things that you mentioned earlier, the the way the, the, the UAVs contain both thermal imagery as well as, you know, true color imagery. I guess it was true color imagery, right? Correct. Or, or the camera, had those two cameras. I have seen that video, the thermal imagery of the of the ducklings. They're not well insulated at that young age, and they, uh, they stand out like a series of flashlights moving across the water. And that's a, in stark contrast, of course, you'll remember this, Katrina, you were down there with us when we were experimenting with the use of thermal imagery <laughs> to identify, locate model duck nest in coastal Louisiana. And you think about the difference between a little duckling that still has uh, down on its uh, on its body versus a hen that is well insulated. Uh, there is a dramatic difference in the thermal signature that those two biological entities at those different ages are emitting. And so anyway, the imagery from those ducklings. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. ...was astonishing and, and certainly made me jealous uh, of, of how great that signature was because we don't get that with those nesting model ducks. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really cool because even when you see a brood, you'll just see like the hen is just gray versus like a bright white of how the brood looks. So let's let's move on here a little bit. You know, so basically you're trying to answer the question of why are some well number one are these these wetlands in cropland dominated landscapes supporting broods and if so what causes one wetland to have more broods on it than the other one or what what's responsible for the variation in brood abundance across all the wetlands that you're looking at right is that the easy way to describe it yep. yeah yeah so we're going to skip forward here and just kind of get to uh, get to the key points what did you discover well so what I will say is you had developed some hypotheses about the different variables that that you thought would be influential. Invertebrate abundance was an important part of that. And I know that we could talk on for an entire episode on the the sampling that went into invertebrates and how much fun and joyous that was to, to, to sort through those. Uh, the, but then some of the other variables that you looked at were things such as the presence of submerged aquatic vegetation and other vegetation around the perimeter and things of that nature. So for the sake of time, let's not worry about going through all of those different variables that you measured, but just sort of distill the results that uh, that you 
I guess, sorted out, uh, the, the key findings that you sorted out, and what of those, if any, surprised you? We did find that ducks were being produced in these crop-dominated landscapes. And our my key findings were that when wetlands had more invertebrates, they had more broods on them. And also, uh, bigger wetlands also had more broods. And when I say bigger, it's a little bit trickier because our wetlands are still small. So we're not talking lake size. Um, I think my wetlands averaged only about five hectares, so 12 acres. Something, I think that's about <laughs> yeah. right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so they're probably, uh, you know, no more than 12 acres generally uh, is when we were finding more broods. My biggest surprise was that apparently, at least in my study, buffer didn't really matter. So grasslands around the wetlands didn't seem to impact brood abundance um, and neither did proximity to crops. I really thought that would impact it because I would think less nesting habitat would mean less ducks, but that didn't come through in my um, research. And that was probably the most surprising for me. That really makes you wonder where those ducklings came from, right? Right. Like then that gets back into the whole prospecting, like how much prospecting does a hen do before she leads her ducklings there? And so what do you mean by prospecting? I know what you mean when you say that, but uh, but describe <laughs> yes. that. So basically prospecting is a hen looking at different wetlands to potentially determine where she should bring her ducklings. And that's something that very little research has come out on. Um, the USGS office in Dixon just released a paper about it last year, I think that potentially hens do look at wetlands prior to bringing their ducklings there. Whether or not we know that these wetlands have, you know, more invertebrates or more water in them is still a bit of a mystery, but hens will lead their ducklings up to a mile through, I mean, I would assume through cornfields to get to a wetland that maybe meets their needs. No doubt they will. I remember I was in North Dakota, I guess it would have been back in the mid and late 90s, and I was walking through I don't remember what kind of field it was, but it was, I think it was early in the season and the, the whatever crop it was, was just starting to emerge. And I was out in the middle of this crop, a wetland, there was not a wetland anywhere within hundreds, several hundred yards. And I came across a hen shoveler leading her brood across this vast developing, you know, ag agricultural field. So yeah, <laughs> they do make those treacherous trips every single day. Oh yeah. And I, I'm not sure if it's the Dixit paper or a different paper, but they show that hens aren't leading their ducklings to the nearest wetland. So I assume that they are figuring something out that maybe this other wetland is better. And that that, that is something I would really like to continue researching. Yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot of things that could go into that, not just necessarily food related, but the same thing that we talk about. Anytime you talk about why waterfowl use one wetland or one area more than others, there's always multiple factors that go into that. It could be that upon prospecting at a given wetland, that hen encountered some predation pressure. And maybe she registered that in her mind and she said, yeah, I'm not going to go to that one. You know, so all, all sorts of things that they, we think they're perceiving and registering and using to make some of those decisions. I recall seeing that with redheads that uh, we were, we were following up in, um, or studying up in, up in Minnedosa a number of years ago. You'd see these hens go out, leave their brood and fly to another wetland. They'd stay at this other wetland for a little while and then they'd come back. And then the next day you'd go try to find that hen again. And she would be 
in that wetland that you had seen her prospecting and she would have her brood there at that time. So yeah, they're going out checking uh, for potential places to move and what causes them to decide where to move and when to move is still a bit of a mystery and it's uh, fun to think about. Uh, what else? Like, so you mentioned one of the big surprises there. Um, what was it that uh, the amount of upland cover around it did not influence brood abundance? What did I get that right? And and what else was uh, did did you find that would be noteworthy here? Basically, in my analysis, it didn't matter whether crops were right up to the wetland edge or more than 50 meters away. The majority of our wetlands had crops within 50 meters of the wetland edge. And I just, I mean, I definitely going in, I assumed that more crops would be less nesting habitat. And uh, I mean, this goes back into potentially crops could uh, run off into the wetland and, you know, potentially harm invertebrates. But there's a lot of papers showing that buffers of the grasslands around wetlands increase wildlife use, but potentially not duckling use. What were the primary species of broods that you encountered during your study? So we primarily saw blue-winged teal. I think it ended up making about 60% of our broods. And then in Iowa and Minnesota, they encountered a lot more wood ducks. So I know they have like a lot of wood duck boxes out there and Minnesota is a little bit more wooded than the prairies. So they encountered a lot more wood ducks. I think I maybe saw one wood duck brood, Uh, but predominantly blue-winged teal still for all four states. And I kind of wonder like, because I know in the you know, when they done brood surveys before across North and South Dakota, it's predominantly mallards. So I kind of wonder if blue and teal are just able to handle uh, a more modified landscape than mallards or pintail, if they just do better or if they're just really good moms. I think they might be good moms. I will say I was surprised and I noted the observation of wood ducks being most abundant in in Iowa. That's not what I would I would have expected. I guess that or just <laughs> maybe it maybe it is to be expected if I knew more about that landscape from the uh, you know at a, at a detailed perspective. But anyway, that was an interesting finding in itself. So let's wrap up here, and I want to I guess give you the opportunity to talk about what this means from a conservation standpoint and you know some of the some of the questions that we that we ask and the research that we pull together to answer those questions it may not like be earth-shattering uh, research or earth-shattering finding that fundamentally changes everything that we do about our conservation programs but it may give us a piece of additional information that helps us kind of think forward a little bit or think a bit differently so and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what's going to be the case here but just you know if if there's not some earth-shattering finding from this that's okay there are incremental gains in our understanding and and then we incorporate that understanding in our conservation programs in a myriad of ways so tell us how you think and what you think it means for our conservation programs. All right. Well, I think first off that we should continue to conserve these wetlands and crop dominated landscapes. And, you know, when we do have these mitigation programs, I think there's additional things we should look into that small wetlands do benefit broods. Even if there's no grasslands around them, this can still have an impact on uh, duck production. And I think kind of getting into chapter two, if I can figure out what influences invertebrate abundance, that could be something that maybe we could try to kind of do at the ground level. Like if we have X, Y, and Z in these wetlands, they're going to produce more broods. Because in the end, we want to produce more broods. And I think uh, this research could potentially help us to kind of figure out the best 
kind of wetland mitigation or which wetlands we should have easements on um, in order for us to have more birds in the fall flight. The piece that I take away from from that, Katrina, that's sort of most significant from a conservation program standpoint is the is what you led with the fact that these wetlands embedded in a in heavily agricultural landscapes are still producing ducklings. Now there has to be some nesting habitat around. We know that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but just because these wetlands are embedded within a cropland dominated landscape doesn't mean we necessarily need to ignore them. They are important for uh, for the resources they provide to ducks and, and ducklings and helping to raise those ducklings. Um, and so they are worth, as you said, protecting and, and conserving. So that's pretty cool. And that's, that's some neat information uh, that will definitely shape the way we think about and talk about uh, and act towards some of these, uh, some of some of those wetlands. Now, as we close out here, I want to give you an opportunity to mention anything that I might have overlooked, we might have overlooked, or uh, but also acknowledge some of the key funding partners and supporters of this research. There's always a host of individuals and uh, agencies and entities that are responsible for that support. So uh, take those two things if you could, Katrina. We covered a lot of it, and uh, I do have a lot of th- people to thank. This was a big collaboration that made this project across four states possible. I obviously want to thank Kevin Ringelman, my advisor, and Delta Waterfowl funded my project. But Ducks Unlimited helped get this project developed and kind of saw through project design with me in the beginning. So I definitely want to thank DU and Delta for helping me throughout my graduate career. And I'm definitely thank everybody for my eventual position at Ducks Unlimited now. Thanks for all my technicians for slogging through cornfields and looking at invertebrates. That's right. We always, they play an absolutely crucial role uh, and, and, Every graduate student uh, has immense appreciation for those those technicians. Well, number one, because they've been there, they've done that work, but then they also, those technicians make the work possible. And we certainly are thrilled to have you within Ducks Unlimited now and are excited about the work you're doing there with the intern program and, and supporting all the other research and science that I know the Great Plains Regional Office is going to be involved in. And, and I look forward to, personally look forward to interacting with you as a DU employee on a lot of the things that we will be working on. So thank you, Katrina for joining us here today, sharing your time and, and for, uh, um, for all that you're doing for Ducks Unlimited and for waterfowl conservation. So thank you. Thank you, Mike. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Katrina Terry, Ducks Unlimited's newest research scientist there in the Great Plains region. We appreciate her time and expertise. As always, we thank Clay Barrett, our producer of the podcast, for the work he does. And to you, the listener, we thank you for your support and we thank you for your commitment to wetland and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.